The Onyx One Month DAP program evaluated Resolute Onyx DES in about 1,700 complex high bleed and risk patients with one month DAP. Visit Medtronic.com backslash Onyx One program to see the data. Resolute Onyx DES is not currently indicated for high bleed and risk patients on one month DAP in the United States. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for June 2020. I'm Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. This month, like May, like April and March before that, COVID-19 has continued to get top billing in the daily news, medical and otherwise. Joining it in June have been the Black Lives Matter protests over the killing of George Floyd, joined by worldwide rallies calling for social justice and an end to police brutality, too often experienced by indigenous peoples and other people of color all over the globe. Those topics have also overlapped in the groundswell of research showing that different racial and ethnic groups are bearing the brunt of COVID-19 infections. Research we've made a point of covering on TCTMD. And while the first few months of the pandemic led to an outpouring of observational and retrospective studies and opinion papers, we've seen a bit of pushback on that this month with many calling for investigators to hold themselves to the highest standards and journals to do a more rigorous job in vetting what they've been publishing. The best example of this was the outcry over two Surgisphere papers that were ultimately retracted from the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet. But where large randomized clinical trials are only now starting to deliver results, anecdotal reports and case studies have helped clinicians worldwide understand the myriad ways in which this virus interacts with the heart. We've tried on TCTMD to highlight the spectrum of issues, but for this podcast, I enlisted the help of two cardiologists who've been keeping a close eye on this as well. Julia Grapsa of Guys and St. Thomas in London, England, is the editor-in-chief of Jack Case Reports. Mary Noreen Walsh of St. Vincent Heart Centre in Indianapolis is a deputy editor and former president of the American College of Cardiology. Here's my conversation with Dr. Grapsa and Dr. Walsh. Okay, well, thank you both for joining me for the Heart Sounds podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I've never done one with two people before. So Dr. Grapsa, Dr. Walsh, thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you. What I thought we could do, you know, usually this podcast, I kind of recap some of the, the top stories on TCTMD, but because almost, uh, I would say 75% of what we've been covering recently has really just been some of these interesting and, you know, tragic, but also fascinating manifestations of, of cardiovascular disease with COVID-19. And of course, Dr. Grafsa, as the editor at Jack Case Reports, you too have been tracking these And I thought maybe you can help highlight for our readers what some of these have been and and then also what that might mean for cardiovascular care long term. Just tell me a bit of background. Where did the idea for doing the sort of call for submissions for these case reports come from? Thank you, Shelley. So when we started actually receiving uh, the first manuscripts uh, in February, um, the first manuscript was uh, from Dr. Betari from Italy when uh, he described the protection in the cath lab in uh, a clinical case of a patient who was COVID positive, but actually had a coronary event. And uh, then uh, we had few more manuscripts coming and we thought, you know, with um, also the help of uh, Dr. Estefania Oliveros and um, Dr. Mino Walsh and uh, Eric Bates as well, uh, we thought why not to do a call 
for clinical cases. And also the, uh, the publisher, Elsevier, helped us in waiving the fees because we, were, we would like to help the frontliners submit their cases. So we waived the fees uh, for publication and we had this call for clinical cases. And we received, uh, Mino knows as well, because uh, she handled so many manuscripts. Uh, we received a lot, a lot of cases. We started the first manuscripts with the protection of the frontliners when they were in the cath lab, when, uh, for example, they were performing a procedure. And then we expanded by uh, demonstrating the cardiovascular manifestations. And uh, I will highlight um, arrhythmias. Uh, for example, we, we saw different like um, exacerbation, not only the QT prolongation that we heard at the beginning from hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin combination, which was an observation that uh, many doctors said, okay, you need to monitor QT prolongation. But we saw interesting entities such as Brugada type 1 um, ex being exacerbated by fever, uh, also a complete uh, AV block without the background of myocarditis, meaning affecting directly the sinus node. And uh, then uh, from coronary events, uh, very interestingly, interestingly, we saw acute uh, stem thrombosis, extensive thrombosis of the coronaries. So because we knew that it's quite thrombogenic virus. Mino, I would like you to highlight, uh, if you don't mind, the heart failure cases and uh, and um, maybe the right ventricular heart failure. Thanks, Julia. Yeah, Shelley, we saw such a variety of things. And I think an, one important thing to underscore is the fact that people were, I really think these were uh, true heroes who were not only on the front lines taking care of these patients, but also paused in their time away from the hospital to write up the cases. An extraordinary effort of academic physicians to put their experiences forward so that people could learn from them. The heart failure cases were really broad. It, it became very clear that the cytokine storm that was being experienced by these patients was responsible for some of the LV dysfunction and heart failure, but the, we published some evidence also that um, direct viral invasion, as demonstrated on biopsy, was present for some. And we received many cases of Takasubo cardiomyopathy in those patients who, some of whom went to the cath lab with a presentation of a, of a STEMI, presumed STEMI, but were found to have normal coronaries. And as Julia says, many of these patients also had um, various manifestations of uh, thromboembolic disease, most of them venous, but some of them coronary, cardiac, and other vessels. And uh, we had a couple of cases of severe right heart failure due to um, thromboembolism. Yeah, it's a fascinating variety of things. I, I, I remember when we were first hearing reports of the virus, I thought, oh, you know, this is, what a shame that I work in cardiovascular journalism. I wish I was in an infectious diseases. <laughs> and then of course, you know, not to make light of it, but it has been a fascinating time to be a heart journalist. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that to be an um, academic cardiologist and a clinical cardiologist at this time has been pretty extraordinary. And of course, anecdotal evidence is used disparagingly for these types of one-off reports. But in fact, these have filled a void, haven't they? In, in that the trials and the gold standard evidence is not yet in. And it seems to me this has kind of been the placeholder in some ways, just to get the word out. 
Yeah, I think Jack Case Reports had a unique uh, platform for people to report their work rapidly. And in, in the case format, we had, a, we had a few case series, but no more than just a few patients each. And again, just to stress too, that I think Elsevier did the right thing by helping the authors because there was no publication fee. So in a time like this with new science that is so rapidly progressing, I think it was kind of an ideal format, at least initially. Of course, we clearly need randomized trials for therapies and registries, but this was really a rapid dissemination. Yeah, and uh, we have written a guest editor's page with Dr. Thomas Maddox that we clearly highlight, you know, that because we didn't have the trials and the large studies between February to April, we decided to publish case reports in order to understand better the cardiovascular manifestation until we have the large studies. Yeah, no, I, I think everybody understands that this has really filled that niche. One of the things I wanted to mention, especially when we're, we're seeing just such um, an incredible movement around the world in, in terms of social justice and some of the protests, and of course, running parallel to that, we've had increasing reports that this virus is affecting different groups differently. And that's been some of what you've captured as well. Can you speak to that, Dr. Grapso? What's the emerging picture in terms of the populations at risk? We had um, a great manuscript from Dr. Garigan Masharma from John Hopkins uh, that she highlighted the differences between uh, female versus male patients. She demonstrated through the different studies that uh, it seems that women, they are more susceptible to the virus when compared to men, but also uh, that there were also other differences. Yeah, there was a really great piece in Jack that had covered very well the race and the ethnicity differences that we're seeing with with this. And so we weren't specific as to an editorial in Jack Case Reports. But as I think everyone is aware, uh, this is a, a disease where the death rate uh, disproportionately affects African-American uh, patients and Latinx patients. It, initially, this was felt to be not related to socioeconomics, uh, but I think we've, although we know that in particular African-Americans have higher comorbidities, including hypertension, diabetes, obesity, etc., we also know that the socioeconomic uh, issues are very real, including housing and differences. We're, we're seeing even more today emerging data from various cities, especially in the southern part of the United States. So this is clearly something that we're going to have to continue to focus on. Yeah. I also wanted to speak to the kind of long-term effects of this disease. And of course, that's unknown. But I did an interesting episode of our kind of current affairs video program where I, I spoke with some cardiologists who themselves had had the infection and recovered. And what I sensed in that conversation was how much it is still unknown. You know, are their lungs going to be fully back to normal? Um, Dr. Isaac George had tried to go for a run and felt that he wasn't running the way he had been before he got ill. And Dr. Walsh, I'm wondering about the lasting impact in terms of heart heart failure and, and other things you might be seeing. Any clues there yet? I don't think so. I know it, from the journal standpoint, we haven't seen anything specific to long-term outcomes as far as left ventricular dysfunction or various indices that we might measure either non-invasively or invasively. But I do have colleagues who've you know, had fairly severe disease, mostly respiratory. And as you said, Shelley, running may not be possible anymore for some people. And uh, even physicians are wondering, what is my long-term outcome going to be years down the road? So I, I think this is an area that is unknown. 
Yeah, Dr. Grapsa, because I've also heard that there's the potential, even in, in very mild or asymptomatic cases, that the increase in sudden cardiac arrest that's being seen um, and is sort of probably underreported, but that is that going to be an issue for people who've recovered and perhaps have some sort of damage to the heart that remains hidden? As Mino said, we do not have confirmed studies at the moment, but for example, here in London, what we are doing is we keep following up uh, the COVID population with echoes. I mean, everybody who was affected by COVID, but um, we make sure that the ventricular function has recovered, that they have the exercise capacity uh, because we want to see in the long term. Uh, so I saw when we were serving in the intensive care unit, I saw, of course, uh, patients that um, they were for months uh, dependent on uh, mechanical support. And um, I have been uh, thinking of uh, these patients that they will have long-term and not only cardiovascular complications, but also neurological and, as you mentioned, uh, pulmonary complications. There was a paper under voice in cardiology, and I want to highlight that. So when we mention hidden victims, they are these uh, patients that they, yes, they didn't die, but it will take them long to recover. And, um, you know, from a physical standpoint, and also another aspect is, of course, for all the caregivers that uh, they received the psychology, they had this psychological burden, and it will take them long to recover. Yeah, this isn't going to be any quick answers. There's also going to be lasting impacts, as you say, on healthcare providers. And I wondered if each of you could tell me briefly what you think the biggest change or impact will be on, on the delivery of cardiovascular care and the people involved in that. My observation and what I'm missing uh, the most is actually we are afraid now to have the face-to-face -face, uh, clinic consultation. We know that virtual clinics developed a lot, telemedicine, which is amazing, and it's a great step towards uh, healthcare. Uh, we call the patients. My, uh, I'm actually responsible for uh, valvular heart disease service, and we know that many patients, they have severe valvular heart disease, and my, our main concern now is that who is afraid to come to the hospital, and um, how do we call them, how we make sure that they are free of symptoms if we will trace all these patients and of course, sometimes it's, it is necessary to see the patient face to face. So are we doing a, a good screening, an accurate screening? Yeah, I completely agree with you, Julia, that patient fear is real. Um, I had a transplant patient who came in for a face-to-face -face visit uh, about 10 days ago, and I've known this person for many, many years, and, and he said, this is the first time I've been outside my house and I'm terrified. So patient fear is real, but I think also from a policy standpoint in the United States, I think the clinicians did an amazing job of flipping what we were waiting for for years, which was this volume to value shift. And within weeks, days sometimes, we were very nimble in switching to the virtual type visit, either by phone or video. And as I'm sure many listeners know, the, these waivers that were put in place first by uh, CMS and, and then by the private insurers are almost certainly going to go away very soon. And so what we had thought was a robust way of caring for patients into the future as far as disease management may go away rapidly. And I think all the innovation that we've seen with our care models will evaporate simply because of the absence of waivers. I hope that doesn't happen. 
but that's what's kind of on the horizon in the U.S. Wow, everyone's looking for some silver linings here, and I had thought that some of those innovations might be a silver lining of this, and I know I'm not the first person to have that hope, but um, I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed that some other types of good and innovation will come forward. But um, I don't want to take up any more of your time and I appreciate both of you. I know how busy you are. So teaching me something here today is much appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for the June 2020 edition of Heart Sounds. Many of the topics we touched on today have been covered in depth on TCTMD and I hope you'll check those out. Over the last 10 days of the month, the TCTMD team has been covering the TVT Connect and ePCR virtual meetings. Not quite the same without going for a run straight into a Lake Michigan headwind or eating too many of the mini financiers that have been known to feed us in the press room in Paris. Like you, we're doing our best with this new normal. Check out our meeting coverage under the Conferences tab on tctmd.com. Stuck at home all these many weeks, our reporters have been hunkering down with some longer form features. Caitlin Cox took a deep dive into the use of mechanical circulatory support for COVID-19 patients, what's known and what's not. Michael Reardon explored the impact COVID-19 is having on cardiologists themselves, as well as other healthcare professionals, and what some hospitals are doing to keep tabs on burnout. Find these feature stories and more under the news tab on our homepage. Before I go, let me say thank you to Julia Grapsa and Minna Walsh for taking time out of their weekends to speak with me, to Heart Sounds producer Daniel Parker, who puts this podcast together each month, and to the TCTMD news team for their top-notch reporting day in, day out. One last thing. Earlier this month, when people were first taking to city streets worldwide to call for justice reform and an end to systemic racism, I spoke with Keith Ferdinand of Tulane Heart and Vascular Institute in New Orleans on a topic I think many physicians are wrestling with. What do race-based violence and social determinants of health have to do with their day-to-day -day practice? That conversation evolved into a blog post by Dr. Ferdinand as part of our off-script series on TCTMD. In it, he argues that physicians can play a leading role in redressing some of this imbalance. The blog is entitled Black Lives, COVID-19, Katrina, and Social Justice, Time for Healers to Step Up. This month, I'm giving the last word to Keith Ferdinand. Thanks for listening. Despite the complexities of our own personal lives as physicians, we are in a primary position to address primordial prevention, primary and secondary preventions of cardiovascular diseases, much of which underlies the disproportionate death and disability seen across racial, ethnic minorities and other disadvantaged populations. Love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original series from TCTMD featuring Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran and Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson. These episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.